Lee Strobel, I don't know if you know who Lee Strobel is. He's a a Christian author now, but he was not always a Christian. Um, He was an investigative journalist in Chicago for the Chicago Tribune, and he was an atheist. He relayed a story, an encounter he had with a father that I want to convey to you because I think it communicates something that we're going to consider this morning. He said one day he got a, a phone call from a very distraught father. And this father told Lee, he asked Lee if, if Lee could go look for his daughter. His daughter was missing. She was a good girl. She was naive to the world. He tried contacting the police, and the police wouldn't do anything about it. And he felt helpless, and he reached out to Lee Strobel for help, see what Lee could do. Lee obviously had the skills as an investigative journalist to hunt down leads and track down leads. And so Lee, moved by this father's compassion and, and situation, began to chase down the leads that he could find. And what Lee found was anything but what the father had described his daughter as. It completely contradicted the father's perception of his young girl. It turned out that this young, naive, innocent girl was actually a drug addict. She'd been a petty criminal. She had a criminal record. She was a girlfriend of a known gang member. And she'd worked part-time as a prostitute to feed her drug habit. And when the police found her body a few days after that phone call, it was determined that she perished because of a heroin overdose. Lee Strobel didn't have the, the strength to communicate the reality of his daughter's situation to this father. And so he just let the, the facts play out, and, and his father found out through the police report But that highlights something that I think captures a truth as far as how the world portrays Christians. They portray Christians and think of Christians much like this naive father. We hold all these beliefs, and and they're precious to us. And in reality, the world looks at it and says, oh, you poor people, you're just naive. You don't know the facts. Maybe they hold us with pity. Maybe they hold us with respect, as even some atheists do. They recognize the moral influence that the church has in the society. But nonetheless, to believe in miracles, to believe in the supernatural, to believe in spirits, demons, all these things that the Bible talks about, let alone someone raising from the dead, is just naive. It doesn't fit reality and what we know to be true. We're just blind in their opinion. Here's a quote from Bruce Willis. Everyone knows Bruce Willis, the Hollywood actor. He said, Organized religions in general, in my opinion, are dying forms. They were all very important when we didn't know why the sun moved, why weather changed, why hurricanes occurred or volcanoes happened. Modern religion is the end trail of modern mythology. But there are people who interpret the Bible literally. Literally. I choose to believe that's not the way. You've probably heard that from some of your friends. They probably think of faith or religion in such simplistic terms. Like all faith is about is just, oh, we don't know how weather works, so we're just going to imagine a deity does it. It's very simplistic on his part and very sensational, in my opinion. But that's where many people are at. In fact, I would challenge Bruce Willis. I'd give him the key to disproving religion, at least biblical religion, the resurrection. 
deal with the resurrection. The burden of proof biblically is for anyone who doesn't believe to deal with the facts that we know. Now, this is not going to be the the focus of my sermon, but while I was in seminary, there was an acronym that our seminary taught us that I want to relay to you. These are facts that people who, if you're investigating the validity of the resurrection, could it have really happened? It's an interesting historical study because many people, Lee Strobel, Simon Greenleaf, who is co-founder of Harvard Law School, no dummy, wrote the legal text on how to challenge, how to authenticate documents as being historical or not historical. Simon Greenleaf was an atheist. When he began investigating the validity of the historical accounts that we have, guess what happened? He became a Christian. There's so much evidence out there. So so the impetus is really on anyone who doesn't believe, you've got to deal with these facts. First, the fatal cross. Jesus actually died on the cross. There's theories such as the swoon theory and others that say Jesus somehow survived that whole ordeal, being flogged, being crucified, and He was resuscitated. The biblical text, however, historical investigation, And modern medical science demonstrate conclusively that Jesus could not have survived that. You've got to deal with the abandoned tomb. Most scholars grant that Jesus was in fact buried in a borrowed tomb that was later found empty. Even the Jews who were the enemies of Jesus didn't contest this. They didn't contest that Jesus died either. They simply said when He was raised that the disciples stole the body. They invented that story. So what happened to the body? Did the disciples truly believe a lie? Which is our C. The conversion of the disciples. If you remember, all the disciples of Jesus didn't believe Jesus. They didn't believe it. But they saw Him. They went from cowering away in a locked room to turning the world upside down. History shows that all but one of those disciples died proclaiming the risen Jesus. Now here's a point to think about. People may die every day for what they believe is true. You see that. People are willing to die for what they're convinced is true. But how many people are willing to die for what they know is false? Every one of them died except one. The transformation of James, the brother of Jesus, even the own paternal brother of Jesus was not a believer in Jesus during his ministry. They thought he was crazy, and they treated him as such. However, after his resurrection, we're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to James, and he became the leader of the church at Jerusalem. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, what could have convinced James to all of a sudden be a believer when he wasn't a believer during Jesus' life? He was convinced he saw the risen Lord. He became one of the early church martyrs. And then last of all, you've got to deal with the conversion of Saul, which is very difficult. He was a zealous persecutor of Christians. He hated Christians. And yet he became the apostle after encountering encountering the risen Christ. He too died for that proclamation. James, and something major had to happen in his life in order to cause such a drastic change that ultimately resulted in not only his suffering, but his death and imprisonment. So those are the facts, and I'm not preaching on that because as you'll see in my sermon, you can present facts for the resurrection. There are many, 
But it's ultimately not facts that convert anybody to follow. It's Christ himself that will. And so, I want to consider this morning, what was God's purpose in the resurrection for mankind? And there's three reasons that the resurrection is still just as pertinent today as it ever has been. So join me in this study. The first is that the resurrection means that sin, evil, and wickedness will not reign in people anymore. Scripture tells us that God is making men new creatures with a new heart and a new nature. Let me read some of the passages to you. John in chapter 3, verse 3 gives us the encounter of Jesus with Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. There's got to be a rebirth in people. Why? Because we're dead to God. We're separated from Him. It's not a physical rebirth as Nicodemus struggled with understanding that. It's being born of the Spirit of God. We sang a song called Living Hope. It's taken from 1 Peter 1. Verse 3, where Peter writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. That's what Jesus said. We had to be born again. Well, how are we born again? Peter tells us. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So for anybody to be born again, the only way it's possible is if Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus made it an imperative. You must be born again. Unless He had been raised from the dead, we can't be born again. Second Peter 1, 3 and 4, Peter would later write, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who's called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He's granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Paul said it very simply this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Qualitatively new, not quantitatively. He's a new, brand new creation. Behold, the new has come, the old has passed away. And then in John 11, if you want to turn there with me real quick, Jesus speaking at the grave of Lazarus tells his sister Martha something that we'll consider. John 11, beginning in verse 21, Jesus finally shows up four days after Lazarus has died. Let's begin reading in verse 20, actually. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met Him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever You ask from God, God will give You. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So if you stop right there, is that true? Absolutely. She believed in a correct doctrinal assertion. But she still had yet to trust in the person. And Jesus is going to make a distinction we'll highlight here in a bit. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet sh shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to Him, Yes, Lord. I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. You see, in this passage, 
Jesus challenged Martha to move from believing simply doctrinal facts, which you must, to believing in the person. First and foremost, the resurrection deals with you as an individual. Every single one of us is dead because of sin, the Scripture says. And so the biggest problem facing mankind is his separation from God. We're alienated from the life of God, Paul says. We are confused and deceived about what is right and wrong, true and false. God had warned Adam in the garden the penalty of sin would be death. And when he took and ate, death was passed on to all mankind. All men since Adam have been dead to God, separated from God is what that means. So what did God do? Well, we've just sung quite a bit about it. That penalty of death had to be paid. And so Jesus came into the world and paid that penalty on the cross. The penalty has been paid through the cross, thus making a way to free us from that penalty because of the resurrection. If Jesus had only died for our sins and not been raised, we'd still be in them. There'd be no offer of life, no offer of forgiveness. God begins His new creation with people. Just as sin came through one man Adam and death through sin, so life comes through the one man Jesus and into you who believe. One person at a time, God is changing mankind through the resurrection. He's making them new people. And that's His program until He returns. He's making new creatures out of us. So that's the first pertinent and most important aspect of the resurrection. None of us can come to God. None of us can serve God. Why? Because all of us are dirty with sin. So God pays the penalty. He makes us brand new people so that we might serve Him in a new and living way, Hebrews says. That's the first great truth and pertinent reality of the resurrection for anyone today. You have hope beyond your sin. You have hope beyond your sin. The second great reason is that it means death itself has been defeated. Jesus is the first fruits of life. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, this is the greatest chapter on the resurrection, in my opinion, in Scripture. Because what Paul does here is he, he makes a case for the resurrection, and it's a legal case. In fact, anybody who doesn't believe in the resurrection, Paul basically says, here, if you don't believe in Jesus, just disprove this one point. It's all you have to do. Any atheist out there, all they have to do is simply show that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And guess what? Our whole faith is in vain. Paul gives them the key. But guess what? No one's been able to do it just yet. Here's what Paul in 1 Corinthians, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It's quite long. But here's the case he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then according to verse 14, our preaching, my preaching right now is a vain thing. Our faith. Our doctrine of belief is vain, he says also in verse 14. Then in verse 15 he says, not only that, we are liars and we're misrepresenting God. Because we say that God raised Jesus from the dead, but if Christ wasn't raised from the dead by God, we're testifying about God something that's not true. 
We're liars. We're deceivers. Paul says. Not only that, even worse, in verse 17, he says this, we're still in our sins. We're vain. Our preaching's vain. We're liars, deceivers, and we're still stuck in our sin, which was the first point. Not only that, verse 18, those who've died, fallen asleep, have then perished, Paul said, eternally. So as I said in the first point, if Christ, all He did was die on the cross as a payment for your sin, but wasn't raised from the dead, you still perish eternally. That's what Paul says. Then he concludes in verse 19, we of all people are most to be pitied, which is the opening illustration. That's how the world views us. They view us with pity. Oh, you, you poor, deceived, simplistic people believing something so silly. However, Paul goes on and says, but if Christ has been raised, this changes everything. First, His resurrection is the first fruits. First of what's to come, verse 20. See, Jesus raised people from the dead in the Gospels. Lazarus is one of them. Jairus' daughter and others. The widow's son. But they all went, went back and died. Jesus is the only and first one to have been raised from the dead and stay alive forevermore, we're told. He's the first fruits. His resurrection, in other words, will be what our resurrection will be. We may die in this body, but when He raises us back up, we will die no more. Death will have lost its grip on us. Verse 26, Paul says this, that the enemy death will once and forever be destroyed. In verse 24-25, through 25, he says, Christ will finally deliver that kingdom in power. And then Paul comforts us at the end of the chapter in verse 58, saying this, our labor for the kingdom of Christ is not in vain. In other words, I can stand up here in a pulpit today and share the resurrection, the good news of the resurrection, knowing that it's not a vain thing. God will be saving and strengthening those who believe. I want to illustrate this point with, uh, with something I read this week. And I, I suppose it was something I knew, but it hit me fresh. One man illustrated it this way, the resurrection. Jesus did not, as in some portrayals of the resurrection, go down into the grave and then burst out of the, of the tomb as, as a prisoner would burst out of prison, right? And breaks his chains and escapes the prison. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus was raised from the dead, the Scripture says. Literally, Jesus paid and served His whole sentence so that death couldn't hold Him. Imagine it this way. A prisoner goes to prison, pays his penalty, and once his penalty is paid, can that prison hold him any longer? No. The doors have to open and he gets to walk out free. That's the resurrection. Jesus walked out. And once those doors of death were opened, there's nothing it could do to stop him. C.S. Lewis portrays this in the screw tape letters and John Bunyan too in Pilgrim's Progress of, of when Jesus goes down into the grave, Satan is screaming at death and corruption to hold on to that man. Don't let him out because if he comes, comes out of that grave, he will breach the wall of, of death and nothing will be able to stop others from escaping. 
And they're fighting. All of hell is fighting with all their might to hold on to Jesus and not let him rise. But Jesus paid the penalty and it could not hold him. There was nothing it could do to stop Jesus from exiting. The tomb stone was rolled open and he walked. That's powerful. That's our hope. So that when you come to your hour of death, you'll get to walk out too. It's been set. It's been paid. It would be unjust, First John tells us, for God to hold that penalty against you when you've placed your faith in Christ and He's paid it already. You are free. We just sang, death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. That's why Paul could end 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Quoting the Old Testament, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? John Owens, the great old pastor, said it this way, death stung itself to death when it stung Christ. When it went after our Lord and Savior, thinking it would gain the victory, it sealed its defeat. Not knowing the power and plan of God. Not only this with this point, though, there's an immensely personal aspect to the resurrection, not simply an academic point or a polemic point. I want to get personal with you. Who here has lost someone they love to death? You see, tragedy strikes every person. We lose parents. We lose grandparents. We lose children. We lose friends. We lose cousins. We lose co-workers. All of us have tasted the bitter separation of death. At this point, I've worked as a pastor many funerals. And every time I do a funeral and I look at that casket and the body in there, I'm reminded of the reality of the presence of sin still. The victory hasn't been fully delivered yet. But what does Jesus tell Martha? Yes, you're, you're correct that He will be raised on the last day. That's a true doctrinal point. But Martha... I am the resurrection and I'm the life. Anybody who has known the, the sadness of heart with the death of a loved one can take this point that death has been defeated through Christ very seriously. We don't preach a vain faith. We preach hope through Christ. The third reason that the resurrection is still relevant just today, just as much today as it ever was, is that it means there is still to come the restoration of all things. Behold the new creation. Turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 18 of Romans 8, Paul writes this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That is the resurrection. When we are raised in His glory, guess what creation's waiting for? That moment. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to 
futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, God's plan in the resurrection is first and foremost to redeem people. He starts with the individual, but then He begins working out. He will not have Satan, as the Scripture tells us, is the ruler of this world, gain glory over his own creation. We're told in Revelation, let's turn to Revelation 21, that God will make all things new. He will have the final say. He will have the final victory. And He will make all things new. Revelation 21, verse 5, or verse 1 through 5, sorry. John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In verse 5, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold. Jesus is saying this, church, let this get your attention. I'm making all things new. Behold the new creation. God's plan through the resurrection has made it possible not only to redeem people from their own sin, it's now given Him right to redeem creation as a whole, and He will, and He'll make it new. And His dwelling place will be with us. No longer in that moment, as Paul says, will we walk by faith, we'll walk by sight because we will see Him as He is. We will be with Him in glory, and we will be able to behold His face Those three things. You see, you can lay out all the facts for the resurrection historically, and I think you should. It's not every day that people rise from the dead. It is a pretty extravagant claim that we hold to. And maybe maybe people will continue, I suspect they will, to view us with pity as ignorant. However, I would challenge anybody who hasn't come to faith in Jesus yet. What's your answer for sin? What's your answer for death? What's your answer for this creation that we can all recognize is subjected to futility, to corruption? I mean, we have people literally, Elon Musk, one of them, recognizing that the earth is corrupt and he's trying to build a Space station on Mars so that man can go there and live. The world recognizes these points and they don't have an answer for it. In all of men's philosophizing and secular humanism trying to abandon God through their reason, since it's taken root and we've rejected any idea of God, guess what? Mankind's history has become more bloody, not better. We've become worse people, not better people. And we're more confused today ever, more confused of what truth is, what's right, what's wrong. 
We are living in the days, like Judges says, where everyone does what's right in his own eyes. And we'll turn on ourselves and devour ourselves. That's the world's answer. They don't have an answer for those three main points. For sin, for death, and for the corrupt world that we live in. But going back to John, the Gospel of John, Jesus pressed Martha to move beyond believing those doctrines simply to placing her trust in Him. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then He asked her, do you believe this? Under that, I asked you this. It's the most important question anyone can answer correctly. Our faith is founded not on mere doctrines, but on Jesus. And so our rejoicing this morning is not merely that Jesus Christ made peace, which is true, but that we're told by Paul, He Himself is our peace. We rejoice not simply that Jesus opens the way up for us, but that He is the way for us. Not simply that Jesus preached the truth, but that He is the truth. And not simply that Jesus taught the resurrection, but that He is the resurrection. We move not simply believing doctrine, but believing the person who embodies it. Believing wrong means this, you will have to answer for your own sins and you will have to pay the penalty for them. Believing correctly means this. Jesus has answered for your own sins and He's paid the penalty for them. Believing wrongly means this. The penalty you will have to pay is death and it's eternal. Believing correctly means this. The penalty has already been paid for you and you will be resurrected. Believing wrong means you will not be a part of God's restoration of creation, the new heaven and the new earth. Believing correctly means you will have a place in the new Jerusalem with God and He will be your God and He will dwell with you and all the saints forevermore. Very simple. But it transforms the world. And so we end this morning our study on the resurrection Reminder of what it is we're celebrating at Easter is God's love for the world. And not only that, His invitation to any to come. There's a formula in John 1.12. John writes this, To all who would receive Him, who would believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. You see, the formula is this. You believe, you receive, and that equals you become. Do you believe the Scriptures? Do you believe God's testimony about what He is, what He's done? Would you receive that? Because He gives you the right to become His children. It's not by works. None of us can stand on our own two feet with works. We're all condemned. But Jesus says, I've got an answer for that. It's by faith. You don't have to do anything. I give it to you freely if you would simply receive it. So he calls men all the time. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And he draws that line. Do you believe this, church? It's for you if you would receive it. You can have it. I want you to close your eyes, please. We're going to sing one last song before we go. And I want to say this. We've got visitors today. We've got regular attenders today. 
whoever and wherever you're at. If you have questions about how you can become a Christian, how the gift of God's grace, salvation, can be yours. It's very simple. He who believes on Jesus Christ and confesses Him will be saved. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Why? So that you might be justified. That you might have hope beyond the grave. It's, it's the Father's delight to do this for you. Why? Because He loves you. As Peter says, as Ezekiel says, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He would that all would come and, and repent to Him, turn to Him. As he says through Isaiah, if they would simply turn, I would heal them. That offer is for anyone. And so if you have questions, if you're struggling with this issue of where you stand with God, maybe you've always tried to approach God based on how good you are. Maybe you're starting to see you're not good enough and you can't ever be. That's okay. That's the place you've got to come to. Only Christ is worthy. Only Christ was good enough. And He gives you His righteousness freely. You trust Him. So if you're struggling with this, I want, you, I want to encourage you to speak with Dwayne, Bo, myself, anyone that you know is a Christian walking with the Lord and can show you through the Scripture how you might become one. We would love that opportunity.